Welcome to the Movie Geeks United 25th Anniversary Celebration of Writer-Director David Mamet's Homicide. We've combed through the archives of our sibling show Back by Midnight, and thanks to its host, Arenada Diaz, we bring you this interview with the film's star, acclaimed actor Joe Montaigne. Robert Gold is a detective. I need you to go out there, find this man, and bring him in alive. We tail him, we nail him, we That's turn him right. over, we shake him. Let's go get him. How come you always got to be the first one through the door? Our job is to bring him down alive. With a garbage man. You think I don't know that? Robert Gold is a Jew. I'm sorry, Bobby. I got a call downtown. The Jewish guys, they got this clout. You were there. You're his people. You're on the case. I'm his people? You hate yourself that much. You belong nowhere. He's about to be presented with some difficult choices. Would you like to know how to, to solve the problem of evil? No, man. Because if I did, then I'd be out of a job. FBI, don't move! Wait, wait! I want to know about the old woman. Get up against the fence. Why are you here? I found a list. A list of Jewish names, men here in this city. I need the list. The list is evidence. You got some heavy troubles in your mind? It's just... I think it's some... Some sort of conspiracy. Greatest strategist of all time. It was another name they had for Hitler. I don't get it. It's not your thing. It's my thing, okay? In the next 72 hours, he will betray his friends. Disgrace the force. How would you like to be suspended? You talk to my partner that way? Do you know what this man has done in the line? Stand down. And commit an act of violence. I want to help you. In your work. What I do, Mr. Gold, you don't want to know. Because he believes it is the only right thing to do. Joe Mantegna in David Mamet's Homicide. The writing of David Mamet deals more or less with men who are telling you everything but the truth. His plays like Glengarry Glen Ross or American Buffalo deal with men so desperate that all they have left is their ability to talk their way in and out of situations. As a filmmaker, Mamet specializes in genre exercises that work as straight entertainment and sneaky deconstructions of genre conventions. His debut as a writer-director, the tricky neo-noir House of Game, works as a straight confidence thriller and a deconstruction of movies as sleight-of-hand illusions. His second feature, the sweet-natured mob comedy Things Change, was both a character study and a meditation on telling the truth. Released in the fall of 1991, Mammoth's Homicide is a police procedural that slowly reveals itself to be a personal procedural about identity. A controversial film about assimilation and what it means to be a Jew anywhere, Homicide is a taught and funny thriller that crackles with classic mammoth speak. And at its center is a powerfully implosive performance by mammoth regular Joe Montaigne. As Bobby Gold, Montaigne is tough, foul-mouthed, genuinely heroic, and ultimately heartbreaking as he comes to the realization that you must acknowledge where you come from before you can choose to be your own person. It doesn't work the other way. It's a tough pill to swallow, 
and one of the many virtues that makes Homicide David Mamet's best film as a writer-director. Now, thanks to the fine folks at the Criterion Collection, Mamet's Homicide gets the typical grade-A treatment and is ready for re-examining. And Back by Midnight pays tribute to Homicide with an extended interview with Tony Award-winning actor and longtime Mamet collaborator Joe Montaigne. For nearly 40 years, he's moved effortlessly from stage to movies to television and has accrued an amazing list of memorable characters. A native of Chicago, he was part of that city's exciting theater scene in the 1970s. He appeared in numerous Mammoth stage productions, including Glengarry Glen Ross, which garnered him a Tony for Best Actor. Among his many memorable film credits include Joey Zaza in The Godfather Part Three, the startled father of a chess prodigy in Searching for Bobby Fischer, Billy Crystal's best friend in Forget Paris, and Dean Martin in the dishy Vegas Chronicle The Rat Pack. Montaigne, most, Montaigne's most endearing role might turn out to be that of Fat Tony on The Sopranos. He can be seen every Wednesday night as FBI Special Agent Dr. David Rossi on CBS's top-rated Criminal Minds. We cover all of this and more in an interview I conducted late last month. But first, we begin at what first drew Mr. Montaigne to acting. Do you remember the first time you you acted and you felt that it that it was something that you liked doing? Yeah, I mean, I was I was in high school. I was uh, when I first tried out for my first play at 16 years old. The second that I finished the audition, I knew in my heart that's what I wanted to do. So, and I really haven't looked back since then. Mm-hmm. So and, it was it, it came on me pretty quick. And you also had a, a like a, a musical background, and so I'm kind of wondering, acting or, or being in a band was it just something about the the idea of just performing? I guess it was. I mean, I probably, you know, I, I used to fool around a little bit as a kid. You know, they, they, my my parents would tell me I used to like try to sing songs in front of the relatives and stuff like that. But I, but not in a, wasn't like I was an entertainer or or had a, did it as a child. It was more like just stuff, for, you know, for fun with the family. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it just kind of evolved. I mean, I got I, I became part of this band during high school as well, and we actually did pretty well. We went on to. We were together about five years, and we we toured, and we we opened up for some fairly big acts like Neil Diamond and right. and, uh, and, and other groups, and and so for as the local bands went, we were we were well known in the Chicago area, mm-hmm. and um, then the the acting thing came around at the same time. So for a while, I was doing both, at least in, in a high school and junior college level, and then it came to a point where I kind of basically had to choose in uh, the acting career became the thrust of where I wanted to go. Do you still play for yourself, for your own amusement? Not really, because I was a bass player, and it's kind of a tough instrument to kind of just play by yourself. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it really was an ensemble in terms of the musically. In ter- you know, and I wasn't the best musician in the group. I was the lead singer, but, but there was a, the, the, uh, one of the other members of the band was really the driving force in terms of the teaching the songs and you know what I mean and all right. that the musical aspect of it so I never considered I fancied myself a great musician but I, I, I played well enough and had basically had to learn how to play well enough to to you know fill that slot in the band right 
Well, uh, since we're talking about music real quick, I'll, I'll ask you about one of my favorite performances, and of course, I'm, I'm sure you probably get this a lot, and that's of Dean Martin. Yeah, well, it was one of my favorites as well. I, um, you know, it was a thrill to portray him. Um, I thought it was a wonderful script, and I mean, I was real feel blessed to have had that opportunity to play that character because, well, actually that person, mm-hmm. because, uh, I mean, I idolized him so much, and I felt I mean, it was challenging, and it scared me in many ways because you feel, how are you going to fill those shoes, you know? Right. But but it, it all worked out pretty well, and um, I, I feel very good about it. I mean, if I had to name my five favorite things I've done in my career, that would definitely be in the top five. This might be a little bit of a stretch, but I'll try to make it anyway. And mm-hmm. The interesting thing about your portrayal of Dean Martin and, and what it seems to be part of the Dean Martin, everyone is about the Dean Martin lore, is that kind of like some of David Mamet's characters, is that he is an enigma. He, he's not someone we absolutely we find a little. We find something, but we never get we never get a whole story about. Right. Him. Well, that's. I mean, and that was intentional. I mean, I did a lot of research on that character. And I mean, of course, a lot of it was in the script. But uh, there was this great book called, you know, Dino. Uh, mm-hmm. Nick Tosh's book. Nick Tosh's book, exactly. And, I mean, there's a quote in there, you may remember, you know, where he's interviewing Jeannie, his wife, you know, his second wife. And she basically said a quote, something to the effect of, I met Dean when I was like 19. We got married. I, we were together for 25 years. We got divorced, and I still don't know who he is you know mm-hmm. and it's there was that aspect of him that uh i thought was important to kind of capture you know and i mean and there, and, and and some of the i, I thought carrie salem's script was was really well done in that respect that it addressed that enigmatic aspect of who he was you know right and uh uh, and you know that's that's what makes it interesting. You know, as an actor, that that's the kind of stuff you love to be able to play. You know, because it gives you some depth to the character. And uh, well, and I guess we should talk a little about Mamet. When was the first time you met David Mamet? You know, I have a vague memory of running into him on the steps of the Goodman Theater in Chicago back in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. I was a member of a a group called the Organic Theater Company, along with Dennis Franz and Meshach Taylor and a few others who have gone on and done things since. All right. Um, and uh, we were doing plays in the Chicago area at the small theater company. And I remember going back to the Goodman where I had been a student, going there for some reason or another. And he was, David was over there. I, I, he was a struggling playwright, and I think he was trying to, you know, peddle his plays, try to get the theater there to interested in producing one of his plays and as i recall we literally ran into each other on the stairs i was coming in he was leaving and he he stopped me i didn't know who he was but he said oh excuse me i'm a playwright my name is david mammon and i've seen your work here in town i'd really, really love to get together with you sometime have you maybe do one of my plays and it was one of those things like, oh, yeah, great, cool. You know, I mean, I have no idea who he was, and I thought it was just like one of a million guys that come up and do that. I was flattered that, you know, this guy said that, but I didn't know who he was and thought, yeah, well, you know, sure, I'll never see this guy again. <laughs> but um, it was, that it was as I recall, that was the first time we ever met. And then... Uh, what was the first production you all did together? Well, I was offered the chance to do... Because shortly after that, he he did you know he met with our theater company, the Organic Theater Company, 
and he liked our company. I mean, he 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 ultimately put together his own, which became the St. Nicholas Theater Company. But he liked our company a lot. He felt the talent. I think our, as I said, those same people I was talking about, uh, kind of fit his idea of kind of stuff he was doing. So he came to our theater company and asked us to do the world premiere of Sexual Perversity in Chicago, which we did. But I didn't do it. I mean, he asked me to do it. I was supposed to be in it. But I got cast, it was like during the summer, during our summer break from the company, and I got cast as the understudy to the play Lenny, which was a big Broadway hit at the time. Right, right. And I was understudying the lead role. And I needed the money, and it was a good-paying job. And so I turned him down. I said, gee, I'd love to do the little your little sexual perversity play, at the, at the, but I got another summer job. And, I mean, to this day, I regret not having had that opportunity to play that, you know, basically the world premiere of that part. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. I mean, so that, that that's the first thing I was offered by him and didn't do. Uh, then he came around and asked us to do a reading of his new play, American Buffalo, just so he can hear it. Mm-hmm. I, rem- I have a memory of that sitting around the theater after a performance of whatever we were doing at the time and reading myself as actor Jack Wallace, who wound up working for also Mammoth for many, many, many times, and another actor named Brian Hickey. The three of us read American Buffalo for David just so he can hear it, you know, mm-hmm. and then asked our comments. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, I think the ending needs a little work. And, you know, we'll <laughs> <laughs> But the very first production I did for him was A Life in the Theater. Okay, and that was the I think the world premiere of that. Wow, and that was in Chicago back in the I believe it was seventy six, mm-hmm. um, seventy five, seventy six. Well, um, I'll ask this: what What do you remember? Do you remember the first time uh, he he showed the play? He showed you the the, the play Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, and what your reaction was when you first read that? Well, you know, I was living in California at the time. I'd moved out to California by then, and I was banging around here trying to, you know, get ahead. And he, they called me, and they sent me a copy of it and basically said they would like me to come to Chicago and maybe do this play, and hopefully we take it to New York. And I remember reading it. And I, Now, I grew up with no um, – never, I never lived in a house in my entire life until I bought one. Uh, my father, you know, we didn't have any money. I mean, my dad always, we lived in apartments in Chicago my entire life. So the real estate business was a total mystery to me. Mm-hmm. So I remember when I read the play, I was fascinated by the character, by the play, but I didn't understand a lot of it. Like stuff like leads and all all the real estate terminology. And so I remember the next day, I think uh, he called me back saying, "How'd you like to play?" And I, and I, and I had to lie, I bullshit. I said, "Well, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to get to it yet, Dave. I'm really going to get to it today. Something came up and I didn't read it. But I, what I was doing is I had to do some more research to find out what the hell this stuff was, mm-hmm. because some of the speeches that I'm making these real estate references to, I didn't quite get. What, what are they talking about? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But so I did a little homework and figured that out. And then, you know, one of the, turned out to be one of the most fortuitous decisions I made was to say, yeah, well, sure, I'll, even though I'm living out here in California now, I'm trying to start in something else, I'll, go, well, I'll come back to Chicago and do this play, see what happens. <laughs> Which ultimately changed my, certainly my career. Right. And by that time, you know, Mamet, Mamet had written a couple of screenplays, but he hadn't directed yet. But by that time, by, Glenn, by the time Glenn Gary comes, you know, hits the stage in, in 84 
how since you since you know since you you know you met David before quote unquote he became the David Mamet entity that we all kind of reference. Did you know, or was there a moment or a, a, a transition when actors realized, oh, you know, David has a new play, we got to kind of work on these cadences, you know, because it's always been about the way he he does these speeches. And... Right. Um, no, I, I never felt that because I never, I never looked at it that way. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's because <coughs> I'm not trying to say that I have this unique talent. But his rhythms and cadence mm-hmm. never seemed um, strange to me, because it seemed to fit the vernacular and, and, and the, the, uh, of, of what I, who I am, and what I was, and the way I grew up. I mean, David and I were two weeks apart in age, and we both grew up in Chicago, and there was a certain familiarity about it that I, I, I really resonated with me. No, I, I, I subsequently, of course, I'd see that people were like, wow, oh, wow. And then, especially when you see people do mammoth kind of badly, so where the cadence and all that stuff really sticks out. It's almost like doing bad Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It's like it becomes, I mean, how would you, I guess what I'm saying is it becomes. Um, I guess you could see the mechanics. You see the mechanics, exactly right. It's it's, it's almost like you, 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 you start to see the mechanics and, and not the. You know, the, 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 you, you see the process of squeezing the, the orange and not the juice. You know, right? So, so I, I don't know whether or not that. Again, it, it's fortuitous that I run into a playwright that speaks the lingo I speak. In other words, it's, it's probably again using the Shakespeare reference. I mean, I think the guys he worked with back then, and, and you know, you know, Avon and you know Stratford. Uh, they got it. In other words, they understood what Will was writing because they spoke that vernacular. It's only later when, you know, you, you, to the outside world, they have to kind of understand, oh, it's iambic pentameter, it's this, it's that. Right. It's this. So, so, no, there was never any discussion about it, at least not with me. Now, maybe with other actors or in other instances that, 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 has arisen, but I, I can understand that because when I've done certainly when I've done Shakespeare, when I've done plays sometimes by other writers who are write specifically for their particular region or whatever, there are certain kind of you know little things that are probably helpful to. Uh, and, you know. and was is there was was there a difference in Mamet's approach to writing dialogue from the plays to when he started doing? The movies because you did his first three movies. Yeah, I would say not. No, I don't think there's ever been. <clears throat> David is nothing else, but if he's nothing else, he's consistent. I mean, I don't think he. You know, I mean, he understands it's two different mediums, but I don't think that necessarily affects his dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of like when we did the play or the movie. I, I wound up directing the movie Lake Boat, that was based on his play, and I didn't change a word of his play. You know, from the play. Right. You know, we opened it up and made it more cinematic. But I mean, I think that's the, I think that's the beauty of his movies when they work well. I mean, it's like, you know, in House of Games. I mean, I think that film maybe more than any other has gotten almost like a cult status, and a lot of it is because people, you know, they, <coughs> it's that uniqueness about it. Maybe because it was the first time they really heard Mamet stuff since it was the first thing he directed of his own. 
right. that was really uh, I mean I've had some people make a comment that gee, it's so interesting because it's so it's so realistic it's the way people talk but it's uh, that's absolutely not the case I mean what makes it and I think what they're really trying to say is it's so interesting because it's the way you think people talk mm-hmm. but it's hyper it's it's a hyper kind of reality it's like in other words people don't talk in iambic pentameter but the fact that he writes that way your your brain gets tricked into these rhythms and stuff and you and it it's like that's what makes it unique it's uh and the thing about uh, homicide the film that we, we, you know we're meant to be talking about this is this was your third collaboration with him as a in the film world this is uh, his third film and your third collaboration with him on right. his film and homicide i guess what was what was it like getting that because you know, House of Games was this kind of stylized noir and minimalist character study, but then Homicide comes about, and it works on two. It works on many levels. First and foremost, it's this kind of really taut cop thriller. Right. And it's <clears throat> it, it was you know he was he was taking it to another level. It was it was um, more plot than he has perhaps even used in the past. Right. And more structured that way. And it was touching on a lot of different things, and I think it got it even got personal. I mean, I think it got it probably reflected a lot of Mammoth's own particular feelings, and uh, you know, uh, was there? Yeah, I think it was more a personal film than the other two were. Was there ever a discussion? I mean, because it is a very personal film, and you know, it's about you know, Mammoth's uh, Jewish, and it's about this character's grappling with his Jewish identity. Right. So was there ever uh was there ever even like one moment of like because you're Italian that like well maybe I shouldn't do this, maybe you should get a you know, a Jewish actor to really plumb this, or was that not even a question? Well, I'll tell you this, and I mean I don't know if it was common knowledge, but actually Dustin Hoffman was originally cast in the role. Mm. And I was supposed to play the role William Macy played. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing fell out at some point and I, and I think, as was a similar case with Glenn Gary Glenn Ross to play, I think the original play they offered it originally I think to Pacino, who of course wound up doing the movie. Right. But the play version was offered to him, and, 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 and as a testament to David's uh, <clears throat> loyalty and his belief in his friends as, as actors, uh, what, what happens is if things don't work out based on the compromise that he initially makes, like, okay, I understand the the, the, the economics of the business and we want to get a such and such a star to play this role. If it doesn't work out, he doesn't, like, then all of a sudden start laying out a pecking order, okay, you know, who's next most popular, or right. I think he goes within his gut choices who he wants to play the role. Mm-hmm. And in the instance of Homicide, I think when Dustin Hoffman uh, didn't work out for whatever reason, he called me and says, "I'd like you to play the part, and I'm going to move Macy into the other part, and blah blah blah, and that's that, you know, and and that's it's fine. I mean, I don't think, again, I mean, I don't think you have to be, you know, though I would totally understand it. But I don't think you have to be Jewish to play. You know, it's like Marlon Brando was an Italian to play right. the Godfather, as neither was Andy Garcia, or or you know, or, or you know, a lot of other, you know, Paul Muni in The Good Earth is not Chinese. I mean, yeah. that 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 aspect of it, I don't think is important. Uh, and the point is that I also done a play for David prior to this called The Disappearance of the Jews, mm-hmm. which was from a group, a play, a group of plays called The Old Neighborhood that they did on Broadway years later. Uh, 
and that play uh, was very similar to Homicide in that respect of that it, it's just two characters in there, and they were based on you know best friends who get together for a reunion, and one is a uh, stayed up uh, ran his father's delicatessen in Chicago, and the other became a famous screenwriter, and it, it deals with their Jewishness in a way. And I, in a way, it was the it predated homicide and kind of mm-hmm. was a um, it, it dealt with similar a similar theme and similar you know things about it. So I mean, Mike. So my goal was to interpret you know what David wrote and, and, and you know yeah obviously not you know right. Italian, but it's but I think I you know I think it's universal. I just saw the ATF. They were stolen, Sully. The Tommy guns were stolen. All the guns on this invoice. Hey, you're better than an aquarium. You know that? There's something happening with you every minute. What does it mean? It don't mean nothing. Some broad got killed. She's dead now, okay? You're going to the ticket office, pick up Randolph's tickets. This is the big one, laddie. Timmy, this other case. Bob. I got this piece of paper I found. Grofaz. Grofaz. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. I got this fellow on the roof, the Jewish house. I... What was he doing? Shooting at him? I don't know. Well, then drop it, Bobby. For Christ's sake, I, I don't get it. Well, maybe you don't want to get it. What do you mean? Nothing. What do you mean? Because I ain't a yid? Well, you ain't a yid. And so what? I'm, I'm an anti-Semite? What the fuck are you saying? It's just not your thing, Tim. It's not your thing. It's my thing, okay? Bob, I'm going to tell you what the old whore said, and this is the truest thing I know. When you start coming with the customers, it's time to quit. Who's this? It's a strap the guy tore off my holster. Well, go get it fixed, will you? Go take a cooling walk, something. You mad at me? Yeah, I'm mad at you. I'm not going to invite you to my birthday party. You dumb kike. Go get your holster fixed. I'll ask you about the most famous scene, and that is the the phone call. Uh, In Homicide? In Homicide, yeah. Right. And, um... And it's an interesting scene visually because we just hear you. The camera pans to the granddaughter right. listening to you, and we hear you spew out this kind of amazing uh, bile without right. ever stuttering. And it, I'm curious when, when you read that, and as you, you know, you said earlier that you know you, you didn't, you know. You knew how you know you and Mama had this kind of affinity for each other, so you know how you to talk. But that speech is one of those that everyone kind of tries to duplicate. And I was wondering, what, how? What's the process of when you get one of these quote unquote, I guess, arias of Mamet? And how? What's the process of prepping to doing one of those and memorizing it, and then not having? Yeah, that's funny. Well, you know what? As I recall, that was one of the times. You know, Mamet's stuff is probably one of the most difficult things to memorize mm-hmm. because of its uniqueness because of he writes in a, such a strong style and such a <clears throat> such a strong rhythm to the while I, I'm not conscious of it you still have to obey it in other words you don't riff on his material or I, I shouldn't say that you can riff on it within the notes that he's given you mm-hmm. you don't add notes you don't subtract notes so in other words it's very important that you 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 hit the the notes as, that he writes. Uh, you don't add libit. Let's put it that way. Right. So because of that, it makes memorizing his stuff really a task. You know, you want to get it down, and, and and then then within just like a jazz musician within the framework of that music, then you play with it. Mm-hmm. Now for that particular phone call, phone calls are are interesting things because they're somewhat two sided and. Uh, 
I mean, you know, obviously they're two-sided. So, I mean, it's, it's a dialogue going on, but for the most part, you're not hearing the other end of the dialogue. And in that particular scene, you're not. And we didn't have the technology or the stuff I'd done the set at the time to, like, invent a, uh, you know, a, a real phone that was going to be able to work that I could actually talk to another actor and mm-hmm. kind of create a dialogue anyway. So it's very difficult then to memorize verbatim a one-sided telephone conversation in a way because I, I, what I was afraid would happen is it was going to come off very uh, – it would sound like that. Mm-hmm. You know, sound like I'm 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 saying something, and then I'm pretending I'm listening to something, and then you know what I mean. Right. right. So as I recall, I had, and this is maybe the only time I've ever done this. I had like, um, I had some cheat sheets set up around the set of of what the dialogue was, mm-hmm. and I did that on purpose because I wanted to be able to not have to think about it, and uh, so that. If I just glanced up, I could see some dialogue, uh, and and then if I had to, then pick up the, the phone, you know, take a take a pause whenever I felt I wanted to take a pause, mm-hmm. and then maybe then look up and then continue the phone call, the conversation, and and, and so that's what I did, and it kind of, I, you know, I guess it worked, yeah, because it gave me a sense of, um, it, it's almost like if if it, if you're asked to in a movie or in a play, let's say to read something from a book, like you're supposed to read something from a book. Mm-hmm. If you memorize it, it's going to sound a little weird. You're better off just go ahead and reading it from the book. Right. Then you're actually doing that thing. So in a way, it was the same thing with this. It was like uh, by having these printed things up there, it made it almost like as if it supplied who that other person was on the other end of the line. When you get a script from, from Mammoth, be it a play or a film, has he worked it out so much that, you know, it's, yeah, we're going to rehearse it and feel it out, but is when he when he shows the script uh, for before going into production, is that it, or if he if if a, if a line doesn't work or if it doesn't sound right, he'll take it out and rewrite it. Oh yeah, no, he'll 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 work stuff right on the fly. And in fact, what I've learned is that if you don't if you don't have it down cold. When you shoot it, like in other words, we'll have some. We used to have some rehearsal time. I remember we had two weeks of rehearsal before House of Games, which I think we realized afterwards was maybe too much time. And you know, film is not like the theater. You, mm-hmm. you know, you can rehearse up to a point, but then after after a while, you just say, you know what, let's just roll the cameras and let's see what we got. But uh, so it got down to where rehearsal time was a lot less ultimately, and I think on Homicide, if we had, you know, maybe we had a day or two, if, if that. And it was okay. You, you rehearse sometimes right on the set, you know, which is fine. But it, but it, with Mammoth, I found that if if you had a, if you have trouble with something, like let's say a scene, like you made the same mistake twice, like you had trouble getting a line out or something, he would instantly cut it. And I said, there, were, there were instances where I fought for a line. I said, Dave, Dave, no, no, I'll get it. And he said, no, 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 no. He says, there's a reason you're having trouble with it. It shouldn't be there. And, mm-hmm. and so just cut it. So he was... He'd get, he'd understand that. In other words, he would, he'd hear it that sometimes maybe what he wrote initially, you know, in his mind was going to work. But then if he heard it and it wasn't, the rhythms just weren't right or whatever, it just wasn't flowing as he expected right. it. No, he didn't hesitate to make a change. Wow. And he would do it right there on the fly. So I'm curious on the insight on this and in that, you know, in theater, Every performance is different. You have, as an actor, I, I, I assume you have a chance. If you did something one night and you liked it or you didn't like it, you have the next night's performance to right. tweak it and so forth. Where film, 
it's getting it to where you have it this one moment captured for all to see. Right. And now on television, you're on Criminal Minds, mm-hmm. it seems like it's kind of maybe a little bit of both in that you're in the same character giving a performance, I guess, every week mm-hmm. and getting to tweak it as it goes along. Yeah. Is, is that true? I would say that's true. I think that's a pretty fair observation. That by you know by getting by having the opportunity to explore a character in such depth, I mean you know this is my I'm beginning my third season on it so let's so I mean if I do the math I've done let's say 50 hours of this character already mm-hmm. uh, so if nothing else I've had a chance to explore you know different aspects of who this guy is and how he behaves and what's he all about. And that's, you know, and, and so, you, yeah, you get an opportunity to define a character a lot more than you would be able to in the span of a film or even a play. And, and um, that switching of gears from play to film and now television, is that something that you like in that challenge, or is there one that you prefer over the other? I like it all. <clears throat> I mean, I like the variety. I mean, that's what I like about what I do for a living because it, it is so. It has such variety. In other words, it's the, the thrill of the unknown. I, I still, uh, I, I still love that aspect of it. It's also the scariest thing about our business. I mean, when you're first starting out and you don't know where the next, if or when the next job's going to come and what it's going to be, that's that's a huge fear. But yet, that's also part of the excitement because you know you can get one phone call which I've had obviously many times, which all of a sudden shoot you off onto a, another world, another, you know what I mean? On, on, on Monday, I didn't know I was going to play Dean Martin, and then on Tuesday, there I was playing Dean Martin. You understand? I'm going to get a phone call, and I'm doing that project. On Monday or, you know, on a Thursday, I don't know I'm going to be doing Ricky Roma and, and Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross. I get a phone call, and the next thing I know, I'm doing something that's going to take up a year and a half of my life and change my career. So... Switching the gears like that is not a bad thing, um, and I and I kind of I I, I I like that. Uh, as to preference, I mean, I, I suppose if you ask this, it'd be like asking a singer, do you prefer singing live in front of an audience, you know, doing a concert, or would you rather make a record? Right. Uh, there's a certain enjoyment of both. Uh, all things being equal, I don't think anything can replace live performance. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of wonderful actors who've never done stage and wouldn't know what it's like to perform, you know, mm-hmm. in a play and don't know what that feeling is, and yet they they do wonderful jobs, whether it's film or television. So it just depends what your point of reference is. I started in the theater. That's what I, mm-hmm. my background is. So right. I can, you know, I, I, I guess all things being equal, that's, you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd love to have a career like Henry Fonda's where. Right. You know, where at the end of the day I go back to the stage and you know just kind of do a few plays to kind of wrap it up. Right. Well, and to start to start wrapping this up, uh, when you look at the the stuff you've done with him, plays and films, I mean, it's going on uh, thirty plus years, off and on. Whether it's you have the lead or something like an Edmund, you know, where you you do a scene in the movie, mm-hmm. and, and 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 that's the great thing that you get, you know. For Mammon fans who who just know the movies and weren't able to see the plays, I mean, to see you and Macy in a, in a scene together, it, there's a charge in that. So, like in Edmund, so I mean, so when you look at that that part of your, I guess, of your credits, what what do you think as 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 when you over the evolution of that of that relationship? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I think back to when I was a student at the Goodman School of Drama, and I used to read scripts of scenes that I was supposed to do, and I would read scenes from plays from, like, let's say, Tennessee Williams or uh, Harold Pinter or me and Terry or, you know, different writers that I, you know, were interested in at the time. Uh, and then I'd look at the original cast list, and I'd see who the actors were who had done the original productions because it would always be in the printed script from Samuel French, you know, wherever you got the script from. And I would think to myself, wow, would that have been cool to have been that guy? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the guy that actually knew the writer, worked with him, did the original production of this. I mean, all, all I'm doing is, I mean, it's great to be able to do it, but I'm thinking I'm the up, umpteenth guy to have done this role and how great it would have been to have been that first guy, you know? <laughs> so now, I mean, all these years later to be able to real and you know, to, to realize I am that guy in many instances. I can pick up a script to you know, to vote either those films or those plays and say, Well yeah, I, I was that guy and I know the other young actors are doing the same thing. They'll pick it up and say, Oh geez, wow, it would have been nice to have been this guy Joe Montaigne and done that original production. <laughs> You know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. So that, I mean, I, I feel, again, I feel blessed to have had that opportunity. Because you can't manufacture that. I couldn't, you know, every actor would love to be able to do that, to be able to say, okay, here's what I want to do. I'm going to become an actor, and then I'm going to develop a relationship with somebody who's going to go on to be one of the greatest writers of our generation. Uh, won't that be nice? You okay. know? So you can't make that happen. So it, it, it did happen. And uh, so, I mean, I guess, you know, it's like it's like the uh, Lou Gehrig speech, you know, one of the luckiest guys in the world, you know, <laughs> just right. not that way. Well, before I let you go, i got to ask you, uh, my listeners would kill me if I didn't ask you, mm-hmm. uh, do you know, uh, <laughs> you know, for all the stuff you've done with Mammoth, probably one of your most endearing characters, I guess, is Fat Tony. Oh, yeah. How did that, how, I guess, how did that come about? Well, I mean, it, it probably came about. I mean, I never, I guess I never really got the total details on it, but I can figure it out. I mean, I, I was first asked to do Fat Tony shortly after the movie Godfather Three came out, mm-hmm. and I think based on, you know, the fact that I had already done House of Games and things change, and and then Godfather Three, uh, I, I, I had a background playing, you know, characters of that genre. Let's say. Right. So I mean, The Simpsons. I think they were only in their third season at the time. I decided there was this character, Fat Tony, they were going to write in for this one episode, and I, I became a likely choice. And so I, I hardly knew what the show was, but I you know, I caught a couple episodes and thought, oh, yeah, it'd be quite a fun share. You know, it's tongue-in-cheek. It was like, I, I just thought it'd be great fun. So I went in and just did it as, you know, I, I thought just a one-shot deal, not knowing that Fat Tony was going to resonate with people <laughs> on a whole other level. And so, uh, I mean, you jump cut to today. I mean, I just did two episodes, I think, last month. That'll be out, you know, sometime down the line. I, I, I think I've been told, I mean, that I've, I've done more guest appearances with Fat Tony than any other, you know, guest right. actor. I mean, it's like he's he's become a fairly popular character. And so I've been doing it for now. This is my 18th year playing that right. character. So, I, I again, it's one of those things I just feel very fortunate to been able to do because I think it is a wonderful show. It's a show that will, you know, it's a historic show, and so to mm-hmm. actually be a part of it. Is, and, it's, uh, I, and it's good, and I'm sure you must like the fact that the change of pace of 
you know, doing comedy. You, you know, oh, yeah. Well, I had a real background in comedy. I mean, I started out in theater, the musical theater. I mean, I started, my first play was Hair, and then I did Godspell. And, and I used to do a lot more comic stuff. And I've done some movies like that, like Baby's Day Out and Airheads. And, uh, Forget and Paris, did, one of my favorites. Forget Paris, exactly. So I, I have a, in fact, and I met Billy Crystal. The reason I did forget Paris is because Billy, I did the last season of the series Soap with Billy and played a fairly extreme comic character. Oh, character wow. Juan one, one. It was like okay. a revolutionary. And I was supposed to do the next season, but then the show got canceled. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so yeah, I, I relish the opportunity to, 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 you know, to, to, you know, do some comedy when I, when given the chance. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, before I let you go, uh, are you all starting to film Criminal Mind? It's an yeah, film. we're, um, you know, today's one of those rare days off I have, but uh, um, we, we started about a week and a half ago. Uh, we're just, we're, we're, shoot, we're in the middle of shooting our, our second episode of the season right now. And then we'll and, I'm, and I'm curious, you know, because of the input, do you, without giving spoilers, do you know, uh-huh. like, where your character's arc is going to be going this season, or at least for the next few episodes? No, not really. I mean, I, it's one of those things that if I had that kind of really intense interest, in other words, if I wanted to go with, sit in every day at the writers' meetings and see where it's going, if I, but I'm not one of the producers of the show. I'm not, you know, I'm not invested with it that way. I mean, I am in terms of my you know, interest. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's important. I mean, my feeling is I have great respect for the writers and the cre- you know, I've, to me, the writing has always been. That's why I've you know such respect for Mammoth. I mean, to be you know, for they on the page, it ain't on the stage. So my feeling is I give these writers complete kind of leeway, and then as they as these things develop, then I mean, I I'm allowed input, and and I've had the opportunity to do that to like say, you know, let's try this, let's try that, and I'm actually even involved with one one of the scripts being written now. Hopefully, that's going to get done. By, it's written by my assistant, who's a wonderful writer in his own right, and I'm helping him develop that because I wanted to, there was this one theme I wanted to explore with my character of David Rossi that we're going to deal with in that particular script. And to me, that's enough. So, in other words, if I can have some input on, like in this instance, one script that makes a strong kind of, you know, in a way back back background statement or background you know uh, exploration of my character that's good because just as I'm getting a handle on who this character is after now in my third season the writers have too Mm -hmm. so uh, so no I don't look that far ahead because partly also because I'm a firm believer of um, you know if we we could look into the future we'd be able to or if we were supposed to be able to look in the future we'd all be able to it's like why I didn't, you know, when my kids were born, I didn't, we didn't, we did the test, but we didn't ask if it's going to be a boy or a girl, because my attitude was if we were supposed to know there would be a window down there, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. There's some things maybe are best left to the mystery. So I like the idea of working today on what I'm working on today, and I'll find out tomorrow what's supposed mm-hmm. to happen tomorrow, you know what I mean? 